Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. The first computer I ever had was the Apple Macintosh back in the mid-80s. I can still remember the sense of friendly reassurance from that smiling little icon that popped up on the screen when you turned it on. A cute, tiny computer smiling back at you. This device, it suggested, knew you, understood you, was someone you could trust. Since then, we've come a long way, baby. The cold, black, addictive rectangle in my pocket, a gleaming window into all the hopes and terrors of the known world, is a far cry from the early friendly promises of that smiling machine on which I could magically paint things at the touch of a button. My guest today, in a very different way, grew up in the long shadow of that same cultural trajectory. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, was her dad. But like our relationship with the machines he helped unleash on the world, hers with him was deeply complicated. In Lisa Brennan Jobs' beautiful memoir, Small Fry, she writes about his indifference, his attention, and her struggle to find herself in and outside of his shadow. Welcome to Think Again, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. It seems like even under the best of circumstances, it would have been difficult to build a life that wasn't somehow about, around, in response to him. I think I did something funny with this book, actually which is that I didn't read the reviews and I didn't read any of the commentary online. Okay. And the reason was, I say, because I just had a baby and I needed to maintain my equanimity. Sure. It seemed irresponsible to go up and down on the peaks and troughs of, of other people's responses to something I had made when I had made the thing as well as I could and then it was no longer mine. But... Um, <laughs> one baby at a time, I well, guess. Yeah, right? yeah, but I, mean, I sort of had to do... Like, I would show up, hopefully on time, for my interviews and I would do my best and then I would and then it was over I had done my part so why did I need to do the chatter of after course, and around and I do think that I've for my life in a large part been able to maintain that attitude also that I haven't been feeding on the all the whatever the detritus Re- radiation or, or radiation <laughs> exactly like all the after effects of someone else's celebrity but I think that that was in part due to my parents value system about that sort of thing mm. um, my father's disdain and contempt for people who, for old money, which may have been a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, I don't know, but for, for old money, for people that, who were not living on the strength of what they'd done with their own hands. That's right. There's this moment in the, in the book, I guess he grew up next to children of old money. Who, Both of my parents, my parents in high school lived together for a summer. Right, right. And they moved into this house where there were a couple goats and, and he would, this is a romantic story, he would sort of carry her to the door because otherwise the goats would buck her. And it was kind of um, against their parents' desires that they're living together. I mean, this is sort of scandal. They're living together before he went away to college and she did her senior year. But at that house, there were next door were a couple kids who were just sort of doing drugs all day and essentially waiting for their parents to die because they were going to get some sort of inheritance. Right. And apparently they didn't 
get the inheritance anyway. But nonetheless, <laughs> it would have been a, probably a more pretty looking story if the inheritance had come through. Right. But, or maybe it did. I don't, I don't know what, what the real story <laughs> is. But the idea that the most important thing is your own time. And the only thing that matters is what you do with your own hands. Sure. And my mother's idea of like, mama may have it, papa may have it, but God bless the child who's got his own. Got his own, yeah. And she also, I guess her Buddhist training and sort of his, I mean, their values of like, no matter what someone else has done, you as a part of the new generation are, are, are necessarily the future. Sure. So against the backdrop of his fame and of a lot of people who were sycophantic, who would sort of hang around him for whatever charisma or power they might gain secondhand, I didn't have that attitude. And I almost had a kind of contempt for this atmosphere of that grew as I got older of people kind of hanging around him. Like, well, don't you have a life? Are you going to do something? And then the other thing that my mother said, which I think is from... It's either Zen or Buddhism or some sort of mistranslation, <laughs> possibly, which sometimes I think Zen is a mistranslation. But anyway. Well, in a sense, right? It's Buddhism as it landed after India in China and then Japan. So it is but I, it's several, I don't mean that several, it's, it's you know. wrong. I, I mean that even, even sometimes the essential nature of it, when it went from, let's say, Japanese to English, might have the words might have gotten a little confused. Well, yeah, like, we no have desire, our, no. Desire we, is important. We have our own American Buddhisms, yeah, right. as well. Yeah. But in <laughs> other words, that the, the <laughs> crucible of living real life is the difficult part. And mm. so if you just step away from life to do your Buddhism, like, congratulations, that's easy. It's hard to maintain, again, equanimity in life. Yes. But anyway, there was some sort of concept of it's better to do your own work badly hmm. than to do someone else's work well. And so this idea sure. of, like, dig into who you are. So right. my mother basically adored me, believed in me, loved me, and was kind of pumping me full of these, go have your own life, you're amazing. You, oh, oh, you're. he doesn't matter, you know, that doesn't matter. And, and the other thing with my father was that I didn't get to know him. I mean, you have to remember the whole time I was growing up, he was... And I'm really not answering your question. I don't care. I but the whole time I, the whole time I was I growing care. up, he That's wasn't right. super famous. And people forget this. You know, like, oh, how was it to have such a famous father? You know, I didn't know him when he had his huge first success at Apple. Right, right. And then he was in the next years where he was struggling and creating what I understand was some incredible technology, but was not hugely successful. Then he went back to Apple when I had already left for college. Mm -hmm. So the whole time I was growing up were the, was the next years. And he wasn't, I mean the party invitation stopped as my stepmother noticed at a certain <laughs> point, like people, he might've been thought of as a one act wonder. I don't know. I really don't care. Right. But, but so it, it didn't feel like hanging around him or sucking up to him. I felt like I had a life to live. So when I was 18, I was going to college and I was leaving and I sure. never came back again. And I didn't, you know, I, I rolled my eyes at him and also he was shy and awkward. Like I feel this with myself sometimes, I'm sure to a much tinier degree, but in front of a large group of people, I'm sometimes a lot less awkward than I am in one-on-one -on -one right. or in front of a small group. And I imagine with him that times a million, he was sometimes extremely awkward. And I'm, so it didn't feel as his daughter like, oh, this is someone to revere. No, no. I mean, as you write in the book, he seems extremely awkward one-on-one. -on -one. And yeah. I mean, one... As an armchair psychologist reader, oh, one, please, one could please. E easily be like, okay, he's somewhere on the, what we understand to be on the spectrum. Like we, right. we don't, the sort of 
normal, easy human affection. And then also the like, the way he deals with sexuality, the way that he is kind of trying to demonstrate affection in weird, inappropriate ways with his wife or girlfriend in front of you when you're a child. Like it's I very, I think he was uncomfortable very and, bizarre. and <laughs> love was hard. There must be a whole spectrum in humanity of the difficulty of loving. And he was somewhere on that. And it was a, not the easiest place. Right. However, when he was switched on, and I don't mean in the charisma sense, but when he was, when it was working, when he was connected. Right. Gosh, it felt wonderful. And not wonderful in some hyperbolic way, just some wonderful in a way where you felt like, and I imagine this is part of the reason people do feel connected to him because he was, and you know, not in a bombastic way, but he was simply heartfelt and wonderful sometimes, which made you think when it went away, gosh, we had what we wanted. Aren't we both trying to get that again? Right. And then it would go away. And I think that that, intermittence between the warmth and the sharpness or the the ability to love so easily and dearly and then the feeling that it had just gone away was more than struggling with being in his shadow what I had to write this book for mm-hmm. I think it was like like in some ways was I the the blot on a perfect story I and mean, I knew that wasn't true but but like was all the things that I feel ashamed about and some of them are probably quite deep, like he didn't hang around me when I was younger and he has great taste, so I clearly wasn't worth it. Those things right. were the reason I had to write this book. And then the fact that my father was so well-known was almost the mortifying part of this story. Like I had always been writing, I had always been a writer, and then you think, what will I write about? Maybe I'll write about the oceans and fish. Maybe I'll research something. I, I know I write nonfiction. I like to have something to hit against that feels real. Right. And I'm just searching around for something to write about because, but all I keep on landing on is this story. And I think it's probably common for a lot of artists that their first project is to some degree autobiographical, sure. but imagine the mortification of like, oh my God, it's going to be, people are going to think I'm writing a celebrity memoir. And what I'm really trying to get at is just to write myself out of this hole in my heart. Not to get out of his shadow because I don't feel in his shadow, but I feel a hole in my heart and I don't know how to get out of it except for through. This may be self-defense, self-justification, but when I say shadow um, in part, I was thinking in terms of I was thinking in terms of the shadow, especially that an absent father casts over your childhood. The need for the relationship, the going back and forth, the push-pull of it, all of those years, you know, that you describe in the book, and basically having to come to some kind of terms with that. And then also what every child does, which is trying to understand who this person is under particularly fraught circumstances just because he was kind of a difficult person in terms of his relationship with you yeah, and, and then the whole world at the same time trying to figure this guy out which is just I it's know, a it's weird really set of circumstances it's a fun, and the world saying <laughs> you know what a what a sort of what a miraculous man and how that corresponds as a fatherless child right with necessarily your feeling of your absent father i think my aunt wrote something in one of her books so so beautifully all anyone has to do to become a god is disappear. Hmm. And so that becoming a god had happened to him because he was my father and then was kind of being reflected in this strange and eerie way in the public consciousness. Right. So that's where these Right, here's a person you don't really you don't really know. The rest of the country doesn't know him either. And then there is the magnified image, both in one image in your mind 
one in everybody else's. Yeah, and it is sort of this strange stochastic resonance, or I don't know. Right, and it seems almost like coincidence <laughs> or overlap, not not, not correlation. Yeah. And yeah. So, right. It, so right. The right. Book right. Had that quality where it's like, yeah, I too am writing about this figure who's larger than life, who I don't quite know. I gave it to a friend who's a writer to read, and he said, um, "I think you need more of your father." And I, this was when it was quite late in the in the process, and I, I thought. No, I, I didn't have more of my fault. Like, I've written the interesting scenes in there. I was hoping when I first started writing it that, and I've said this before, but that he would be a bit boring on the page. I thought he might be, in fact, because mm. in life he was sometimes quiet and, I, as I said, a bit awkward. And so it came as a su- disappointing surprise that he wasn't. He was interesting. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have to share the spotlight with him. I mean, he's interesting only only because of the, it's just the problem in everybody's mind about ambition, about fame, about success, and about the individual, and trying to, to reconcile those things. And so there's always going to be interest when there's some like disconnect between, you know, you've got this cultural image. Like, like I said, I had an Apple computer when I was a kid and like those machines were friendly and like that was my first, you know, and so like somewhere in my little child's heart, Steve Jobs gave me that, you know, and, and so, and then, and then so soulful about the products and and there was something so soulful about the products and that's true. And there was something so, so sometimes soulful about my father. And I think that that does, come through to some degree. But I, I think if I'd written a book and Steve Jobs was not in it, that character would still be interesting on the page. And there's a quality where of charisma and of trying to tell the truth and maybe overshooting it or being too severe with it or being too awkward with it mm-hmm. that's just unusual and interesting. And also just this character who obviously has so many tools and so many resources and yet can't pull it together in the personal realms to make it feel good. That's kind of like... In some very... I mean, we're all flawed, but like here in some very surprising and fundamental ways where you're just like, yeah. well, I wish to reach into the book and throttle, throttle him. him yes. sometimes, right? Yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> totally. And me too. Yeah, I was like... But I took a lot of it personally. I mean, I think two things that happened when I was writing the book. One was... It's hilarious when you realize you're gesturing on a podcast. You know, I was going to see my gest- very Italian hands here. I feel like I'm. I don't, don't need know. To be I'm half Italian, so maybe that's why. I and, and yet so you much, seem yeah. completely calm. No, no, I was. Um, doing were, okay. I actually just noticed my watch rattling in the microphone. Oh, so, right. audience, that may be what you just heard because oh. I was gesturing wildly. Yeah. Wildly. So, two things when I was writing the book. One, at the beginning, I was. And I'd forgotten this. I was disappearing on the page. Okay. So not only was he coming through as this incredibly interesting and charismatic <laughs> figure, but I wasn't anywhere. And I don't know how to explain to you in, in sentence terms why that was the case, but it wasn't until I started having maybe some kind of mischievous naughtiness, some kind of will of my own that wasn't pleasing that I became a character. And it helped to read this boy's life. Tobias Wolf's This Boy's okay. Life, because I noticed when I was reading it, the more devious he is, the more I loved him. There so are... I wanted to be loved, right? And so I was trying to get you to love me by trying to be <laughs> right or trying to be a victim or trying to like, you don't understand. It was hard because it was like this. And it wasn't until I read that book that I realized, oh, I don't love him because it was hard. I love him because he was naughty. I love him because whatever he was going through, mm. he had his own will. He was carving his own path. And so then that kind of opened into permission to discover those areas where I felt, which I think is the reason I was writing this book, because that's the only way you can kind of heal this sense of being ashamed or being on the not being on the inner circle or maybe 
being having a, some kind of hole in your heart or your soul is sure. you have to kind of figure out what you're ashamed of. I think. I mean, not to be all self helpy on you, but I think it was. I, I mean, that, but then it's like it's interesting. That's with just writing. psychology. That's is it? that's. I mean, that's just your life. Like yeah. that stuff ma that matters. Yeah, that is <laughs> it. Okay. So, so then I I started thinking. Well, what did I do? Like. What if I shared with you what I really did wrong that I'm hiding, that I'm hiding by trying to be so good or mm. that I'm trying hiding by being a victim here? And my I, I, at the time I was dating my someone that I didn't end up staying with, but he was wonderful. I'd known him since I was little and he helped me write this book and I'd written sort of the teenage sections and I really desperately, even though I n didn't tell him or you, wanted everybody to feel bad for me because it was so hard. And then he read it and said, Lisa, I'm... I knew you then, and I'm just not buying it. You yeah. always get what you want. And I thought, oh, right, I do. So why was I hanging around in this place? What was it that was wrong? And the same with when I was younger, like just remembering when I would bring up my dad's name just to make me make myself feel more substantial. Right. And the Harvard scene, which I don't particularly want to give away, but I, I thought I might go to that. I thought I might go to my grave with that secret because it just felt like, well, then people will know I didn't maybe legitimately get into this bastion of you know, education and knowledge. And, but I wrote it out and you know what? It was a good scene. Yeah. It was the truth and it was a good scene. Why? Because I had a will and I was going to find my way through. And why are kids naughty? Because they're just trying to survive. I think, you know, there's, so there's a couple things you talked about, you talked about erasure and you talked about naughtiness. And I, so like there are a few acts of theft that happen in, in the book. Right. And, and maybe the book is an act of theft. Right. Right. Sure. And so, so that's interesting, you know, that like, I don't want to unpack that fully. I think maybe you can do a better job than I can, but that something is to, denied to you. You are in that sense, as a child, you are a victim. You are victimized. You are denied something. You're an and so innocent. Then, when you're writing from the perspective of a child, you have a certain benefit of the doubt because you're an innocent. So you can be as bad as you want and as sad as you want because you clearly survived to write it. Right. So you have this thing to play against. But what I'm saying is like as the actual child, as you, like when you were a child, right, you are you are a victim of a thing. And then how do you get how do you get a self? How do you get control? You know? Right. You have to somehow participate in your victimhood to have autonomy. I mean, I wouldn't have put it in those words. It was just honestly in writing just doesn't ring true if you're a victim. Because I think people aren't, there's some corner or some piece or some edge of power that everyone has. And so if you're trying to write it as if you don't, it just doesn't, it may work in conversation. You could say, oh, I did this and I did And your friends would say, oh, I'm so sorry. But if you wrote it down, it just wouldn't read well because something about it would feel would feel like the reader was being manipulated. Well, what I mean, what I'm trying to say is that in your case, that's not the whole story. And the reason it's not the whole story is because whatever was in you as you were a child trying to figure out who the hell you were, trying to get what you needed and wanted and wanted, which wasn't given to you, right. you know, right. then you have to, then you managed because of who you are to take it in some way. Right. But exactly. And so there, those acts must... of theft are also acts of self building. You know, that's, that's your real story. Like, or even self building an attempt at self building. Right, like, right, right, these right, things right. I'm experiments, stealing around the house, experiments. Yeah. yeah. The funny thing about these things I'm stealing around mm -hmm. the house, even at the time I thought these things aren't actually worth anything, but then this strange overpowering need would fill me as if this thing really would complete my life. And I thought, oh, I hadn't been a shoplifter. I, I honestly didn't shoplift. Um, 
But it did give me more perspective on what that might be, or Winona Ryder or something. Just the psychology of needing this thing you even intellectually know doesn't matter. It feels, it felt emotionally. And then I was writing about taking, because in the service of writing about all these things I was ashamed right. of, I thought, oh, right, I took those hundreds in high school. <laughs> I guess I have to tell people I feel so bad. And then writing about that, there was a stack of $100 bills, and I would, I think maybe four or five times, I took one. Oh, I think wow. at one point I took yeah. two or maybe more than that. And I think I didn't understand that they were actually being probably replenished every month. So I thought maybe that was the stack or I don't. <laughs> and, and I thought I indulged in the feeling of what would happen if I was found out. And it felt like the darkest, worst thing. And I wonder if, if contemplating that feeling of being completely cast out or recognized for who I was, this thief, Mm. might in fact be the reason I was stealing it all, that I was trying to explore the dark place of knowing that I wasn't worthy at all. Mm. But anyway... Or I'm maybe make the whole thing explode, you know, self-sabotage in that way, which is another kind of freedom. Then then you're sort of done once and for all with the push-pull of right, you've hit this bottom. situation. There's know? no secret to be revealed. Yeah. The worst has happened. Yeah. Then at least you're not always afraid of falling. But, but as I wrote about it, it just didn't seem... So bad then. So it was almost like the act of writing. I'd been carrying around all these things I felt so deeply ashamed of, and then writing about them lifted the burden of them, and they just seemed so silly. And in fact, I wrote about it because I had decided I was going to write about all the things. And I'm such a people pleaser, in fact. Okay. That, and I and I'm I want so much to be liked, and I want so much to be on the right. I mean, I got A's, and I worked hard for all my, you know, that writing about these shameful things that I had done felt like a kind of crime. I mean, huh. it felt like I was committing, you know, I, I was really going out on a ledge here. Almost like betraying betraying your good self or, or the, the would-be good self. I was definitely, yeah, <laughs> marring the, tarnishing the image of myself I wanted to carry around. And it didn't occur to me until after I wrote that I had been stealing this money. Oh, oh, maybe I, I felt I'd been robbed and, and I was trying to even the scales in some crazy way unconsciously or, you know, I just, the idea of theft mm. did not, it emerged as a theme unconsciously because I was just writing about all these things. Let's, well, okay, let's write about everything. If I'm going to write about everyone as human, right? then I guess I have to write about myself as human. If I'm going to have my mother yelling at this little kid in a car, I mean, she wasn't yelling at me. She was just yelling at life, but it was terrifying. If I'm going to have her doing that in a dark car lost in the rain, if I'm going to have my father with all of his awkward and cruel moments, as well as his kind ones. But if I'm going to include it all, then I have to find all of mine, even as even as goody two-shoes as I am. Sure. But then themes emerged. And then I thought, gosh, is life just, does life adhere to the rules of story? If you get deep enough into your own life, is it like a high school English class where mm. you sort of, what are the themes, mm. you know, and you watch themes repeat and repeat and repeat, not because you've created them in fiction, but because you have unearthed them. It seems to me so many of the things we do, so many of the ways we act in relationships, so, so, so much of what our lives are made of are acts that have symbolic meaning that isn't clear to us, you know, right. that like resonates on multiple levels and that emerges out of like deep, weird, churning places inside us that we simply right. don't understand. And those kind of yeah. revelations are so gratifying when you realize, oh, oh, that's, that means this. And it's almost like a story. It's so clean, cleanly yeah. symbolic. But I did also feel... I think part of the reason this book took me a long time to write, one, I had to get old enough and 
grow up enough myself that I liked the perspective I was writing from. Sure. Which was annoying. It was like, oh, I want to write a memoir, but I, I can't. I am not the person who has to write it yet, and yet I have to start working on it. So that was annoying and shameful in itself in a certain way. It, it felt like that just to be, you know, this kid of the celebrity writing this book for so long. Everyone's like, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, you'll definitely finish your book. You know, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> um, but it felt in, uh, like such a betrayal of of any hope to be pleasing, of any hope to be good. There is something like theft in a memoir. If you want to write about yourself, you have to write about other people who right. are unwitting and don't want to be written about. And you have a responsibility, I think, to be as kind and as and certainly honest. But honesty has so many facets. You can't even understand someone until you have until you've walked a mile in their shoes. So how can you even know? And so it felt like I had to do this thing that wasn't so great. <laughs> You're revealing people in ways that they might not necessarily want to be shown. Right. Yeah. And it felt like a crime. It felt like theft or even worse. I was going to say murder. But so in that sense, I decided to take that space for myself and do it. Yeah. And yeah. alienate people if, if need be. But it was a long process to get to the point where I didn't feel like everyday writing was, was criminal. And that can be quite stifling while you're writing. Sure. Even if you know, like, oh, I can throw it all away later. I can, or I can throw away the pages that are too revealing. It's somehow still even having written them down feels wrong. It was that same ex-boyfriend. I had been really being careful about my mother. I was sort of me and my mother were good. And then, and then all these other people had, were more human and multifaceted. Right. And then um, my ex-boyfriend who knows my mother said, Lisa, I think you're going to have to, you know, lay it all out there. You can cut it back later but you've got to be honest. But I really did feel like I was killing something off to write that. Your mom, how does how did she take it? She's been great. I mean, she she's been great and I didn't even think it would be this good, I have to say. Although I had some desires and wishes and I worked hard for it to be good. The she, book, you mean, you didn't you No, know. I worked hard for the book to be so honest that she a lover of honesty would be happy with it. And mm -hmm. I think She's told some people and she's told me like, it wasn't actually, it was a lot harder than you wrote it. But it, I mean, you true. had were, access only to what you had access to as a child, you know, yeah, you're not and inside her head. Yeah, and there were points that were harder, like, but, but there were also stories that are maybe more salacious, but they didn't serve my story. Mm -hmm. And also truth is stranger than fiction. If I got weird, if I got any weirder or any harder, I don't know, I don't know who could have handled it. Um, well, and then it starts to obscure the story, my story, which is not necessarily about anything like that. Right. I couldn't get too angular. One example is that she, I sent her the draft. There are mixed views about whether you send people a draft of your book before sure. you publish it. Philip Lopate. I think it's very personal, I think. Yeah. yeah. Philip Lopate, who's a, such a, he's been such a good friend and mentor to me. And I think he's brilliant personal essayist and thinker. He has a whole short essay about not showing the people that you're writing about your work. And the reason he says that is because you're basically asking them to absolve you and you're going to publish it anyway. Right. So take the blame, take take the res own the responsibility of the difficult thing you're doing. But I did feel with my mother, I did feel with my mother I had to send it to her beforehand. Also because she might say, "Oh no, that's not right." 
about certain things. Sure. She had a few corrections, but one of her corrections immediately was, you're, you're incorrect about how many houses we moved and that's not right. Oh. And we did have furniture. So I had, but I had, <laughs> she, and she's dyslexic. And so getting, and also it was such a hard time emotionally. So getting the num, getting the exact order of the houses we lived in, and I visited them all in California and I stayed in California was very difficult. And I, I had, it took years actually to get the houses out of her. And then finally I had a list of, uh, I think it was 13 places. And I knew that each one was joined to the next chronologically. I knew they were in the right order because, you know, from this place, then we looked at the, she looked at the board and that was, there was an advertisement for uh, women maybe looking for adoption, but she called the woman anyway. And we had everything, and then she got this job and then we had that thing of, so everything was, I thought, perfect. And she said, no, you have it all wrong. So then I said, oh, really? Let me send you the list. You know, my little innocent, well, let me send you the list. So I sent it to her and then she was silent about that. She was silent about that because I had it right. Uh. So I'd had to get, <laughs> I had to get my facts in order. Um, sure. And so she that sent sounds me. like seems like the least fun part of writing your own memoir. Yeah, like, although it was quite nice because it gave me a lot of new ideas, stories mm, I'd forgotten about, mm, doing the research to get the chronology things, right. Huh? It did unlock things. It's nice because then you feel you have this structure to that can hold a lot of emotions and stories if you have the facts right. Sure. And I had it fact-checked, and that was satisfying as well. I mean, you have to fact-check now in publishing. They'll do the legal fact-check to make sure no one gets a horrible lawsuit, right. hopefully. But you have to do the, the actual fact-check that they do in magazines. You have to do, you know... Uh, and then we walk 20 minutes to get to this store. Oh, no, but I've checked it out. And the, that store is only 10 minutes away. Oh, wow. Like that kind of fact checking or that tree you mentioned doesn't grow in California. Huh. You know, that kind of fact checking. Um, you have to do it as a writer um, or the age you're saying that person is doesn't correspond with. Right. So it's, Got it's you. important. Got you. Yeah. And was also important for me with my father because I figured some people would might geek out and then discredit my book based on on things like that. So yes, I, had to get I, it I would think the right. liabilities would also be greater for the publishing company if facts think. are wrong and some. I would think. Well, I mean, I Apple think Walter's, Walter's book them. wasn't fact checked. Walter Isaacson's okay. book about. It, I would have taken I probably a year to fact check, and he did not take the time. My book took several months, and it was a memoir. His was so fact based. It would right. have, I mean, it would have been an intense amount of fact checking work. I still think he pr probably might have done it. But a lot of books aren't getting fact-checked these days, and I don't think the liabilities are great because the lawyers comb through for where the liabilities okay, are. Okay, right. <laughs> um, but the other thing that she did is that she was sending me texts as she was get it going through it, and it was a roller coaster of emotion. It was so bad. It would, it would be so bad at points, you know, I'm trying to think of what I can say publicly sure. about what she would she would text me, but it was I probably can't even say anything. The bad parts were so bad. Her texts, just her Not, her responses to things you had written about. Yes, yeah, sort of. How dare you? Blah blah blah. Yeah, like yeah. meaning not that the facts were wrong, but that I had depicted something in some angular way, or her, or she didn't like, you know. Because if you look at anything in a story, in a microcosm or in a tiny section, I mean, I'm trying to give a whole picture of humanity. I, sure. I can't, one scene where she looks bad is true, but is, is balanced. You know, she didn't, un she didn't necessarily understand. You don't understand. People understand you're a single mom. People mm. understand you have no money and you feel deeply ashamed and have been shamed. And so your actions come from somewhere. And the other reality here is that, you know, and this is the hard part. I mean, you have, a, you have a relationship with her, you love her, you know, but, and you are her daughter, but this is a book 
about your perspective on your life, you know? Right. I mean, you, yes. uh, children are yes. not going to see their parents the way that the parent or the things that happen, the way that everyone in that story might want to be seen. Nobody That's, can see. <laughs> like, yeah, no one can write the memoir. No one can depict you the way you want to be depicted in sure. someone else's memoir. It just wouldn't. But then by the end, I think, I mean, I know. she. It was like this horrible roller coaster. I didn't think she'd finish. It was like 40 pages in and I've received a whole roller coaster of text and I think, you got to get through this, mom. You've only got two weeks. You know, like if you don't get through this is your fault, but I would love it if you got through it. And then, and then or maybe I gave her two months or something. And she did. She got through. By the end, she was really at peace with it. And I got some wonderful messages. And then she was kind of amazing on the book tour. She came to all the events that wow. she could and was supportive and interested in talking about it. And I thought, I mean, she's, she's difficult when she's difficult, but when she's, when she's good, she's exceptional. And she kind of was, she astounded me. Well, and in a way, I'm sure that this had to have been transformative and meaningful in her life. Like reading this, going on that tour with you, coming. Well, she didn't. I mean, sorry, the California part of the tour she came to. She didn't like go on my book tour. Well, with but me. to whatever extent yeah. she had to re-engage with this story. Yes. And with these emotions like that, if you come out of it not just totally embittered and torn down. It yes. has to be healing. Totally. And I think that she, so she had also written her own book, but there are places that I probably got to that she wouldn't get to. And also I think she had been such a force encouraging me to write it as much as I, when I was in deep doubt and miserable um, shame about the prospect, she was saying, you have to come to terms with your own history so you don't repeat it which seemed to me to be the biggest cliche ever. And I was like, you don't understand. I can't write a memoir as a daughter of a famous person. How mortifying. I'm a writer. I'm a serious writer. Um, but then, as simple as that phrase sounds, I think it's incredibly true that if you don't shine, if you don't illuminate these darkened, unconscious areas of your own life, you just don't have the chance to realize what they really mean from an adult perspective. And so you're carrying around. Sure. So, for example, like... With my father, we're, we're driving to his mansion, and I'm, like, alone with him for the first time, and he's powerful and handsome and charismatic and interesting, and we're driving in his Porsche, and we're driving to his mansion and through the forest. I mean, it is like the fantasy of the fatherless daughter, and yet he doesn't talk, and I can't get him to talk. He's kind of monosyllabic and weird, and I feel lonely and weird and scared even as I'm in the middle of my own ecstatic dream of what I wanted. And it wasn't until I went back and wrote this, and this came through in many scenes, that I realized, oh my God, he was so young. He was younger by far <laughs> than I am now. Mm. He hadn't been hanging out with this kid. He's now decided, made this decision, he's gonna get to know me, but he is still awkward. He is still maybe terrified. I mean, probably terrified. And he's there, still probably- And there's something, he's dealing with something very weird between his, like the ideas that you talked about in the beginning of this conversation around money and around fame, like, like what his attitudes are about those things and about the relation with children. Right. He wants and, to protect and, and then, me at the same and, time as he wants to protect himself. And, and is sort of a self-mythologizing figure on some level, like is seeing himself on a trajectory, right? Yes. He's yeah. And so like on the one hand, he has this Promethean imagination of himself, wants to be this thing, is totally conflicted about what that's supposed to mean, you know, in, in, in terms of his relationship with you. There's that one moment where you ask him about that Porsche, like, 
could I have it at some point? And he just utterly flips out. You yeah, know, like and when, kind of, when and, and you no so, longer need it. Yeah. So I'm an adult writing about this, and I realized how cruel that moment was, how awful, because I remembered how awful it was at the time. But now that I'm writing about it, <laughs> I have to tell you, it's very him. Um, you're getting nothing. And there was some quality, some piece of that quality that, while totally miscalibrated, and that scene is, it just feels like your painful, heart is yeah. stabbed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm trying to connect with him, and he's basically saying, you're not getting any of my stuff. You know, I mean, he's basically saying, get lost. But there was he there was a good element of that that he carried throughout his life that I have benefited from massively, which was that he wasn't trying to buy me. <laughs> In fact, sure. he was like uh, he knew how detrimental from his you know Buddhist training or from his own value system how detrimental money was or buying kids off was. Mm. He was kind of in this weird position where he could and he had to be really strong and. And in retrospect, looking at myself, and this is more in high school than at that time, I was someone who probably could have been bought for cheap. In other words, I would have been, I was desperate to call the story and the difficulties, difficulties of this story done. Yeah. I wanted to close my heart rather than be in pain. And he refused to let me. And I probably would have done it with a nice car and some great jeans. Sure. And so, so while I'm not saying, I mean, it was horrible that, and that cruel. That still doesn't let him off the hook because he, because. Nobody's <laughs> off the hook. <laughs> this is a terrible thing about right. writing a memoir. But I guess what I'm also, but, I'm, but what I'm saying is writing it again, I'm like, oh my God, he's made a million mistakes, but oh my God, I get he's it. Yeah. so young. He's younger than I am now. Yeah. I see what he was kind of going for. I see where he was kind of screwed up. I see where he was, in other words, what had lodged in my mind as I'm not interesting enough. Maybe he doesn't want to be with me. It's I only realized yeah. later he was awkward, didn't know yeah. what to do with me, felt his own massive conflicting emotions. It was not personal. And if I hadn't gone back and sort of, and that's an example, but if I hadn't gone back with a fine tooth comb, a lot of these assumptions I'd had from a perspective of someone who understood so much less would have just been the air I breathed into my future. And sure. so I feel like she was right, my mother, in this idea of like, go back, talk about it, figure it out not for anyone else, for you. And so I think her joy at this book was not only a smaller thing, like how did I come off? Or her ability to cope with this book was also that her daughter had done what she felt was necessary. Like I, you know, I sort of like fulfilled her wish as best I could and she felt maybe like it was sufficient. Right. Where does it leave you now having done this? You now have a child of your own. You're you're moving on. You're going to write about your you've been writing about other things, but you're going to go probably writing about oh other God, things. Oh my god, I'm so excited to write other, about other <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah. However, and, and right probably now, and here you are, we, you know, with the, the paperback has come out and so you're still having to talk about this this thing, but like I'm imagining you are and would like to have moved on from this. So, <laughs> well, I do love to talk, but um <laughs> I'm sleepy. I'm tired. And I'm so happy that this didn't go off the rails. I, mm. there was a, there were a few tender moments at the beginning of before the book had come out when there was some publicity about it that I thought, oh my God, this is going to be bad. Like um, before when it was ready to publish, but, or when it was, when it was, when it was excerpted, but before it was getting reviewed, mm. um, when it was sort of this, oh no, is this going to be, I'm going to be like celebrity memoir chick or something, or this book isn't going to get, it isn't going to get 
people with an open mind reading it. It's going to get people who are looking for my father and then who are disappointed they don't find more of him in the book. Right. You know, like they pick up the book thinking they're going to get a book about Steve Jobs and they found themse- find themselves, you know, immersed in the story of a girl growing up. Oh, um, right. that's and, yeah, and to Let's be, okay. be clear. I want to I want to back that up. I want to say this is a this is like a reflective literary memoir that is, you know, clearly not just a yeah, neither an expose nor nor an attempt to, you know, mine the psychology of, of Steve Jobs for Purian readers. I mean, it's... it's Right. A, the people that do pick it up thinking maybe it's a celebrity memoir then find that they are thrown in some astounding way into the thoughts and feelings of their own childhoods. Yes, I would. that makes sense. And that people who pick it up hoping that, assuming they're going to learn more about Steve Jobs, sometimes find themselves hopefully swept up in a coming-of-age story about a girl. Hmm. And so I hope it's unexpected. And that has turned out to be less of a liability than I worried it might be. Right, um, right. So now I, yeah, so we have a 15-month-old boy and we moved house and we had a wedding, a quick wedding when I was massively pregnant in our living room. And the book came out in the same six months. So I decided I was going to take a year off. <laughs> I decided uh-huh. I was going to take a year off. And then my editor pointed out, you can't take a year off. Your paperback is coming out. Like you, so so I've dragged of, you out of your, uh, your, your, what should have been your blissful maternity leave yeah, to exactly. come, come here and However, talk. I have to say, <laughs> this is blissful compared to maternity leave, right? Like I get to talk about myself. Like I'm important now. So <laughs> I'm trying to kind of get my sea legs a little bit in I, I, these new roles and yeah, I looked at my closet at some point, my clothes, and I thought, whose clothes are these? Like, who wears dresses with, who wears so many skirts and shirts and dresses with polka dots? <laughs> Me? Like, who is this? Who was that woman? So I'm trying to figure out kind of where I am and who I am and gingerly investigating some new ideas for new topics. But I'm at such a initial stage right? Um, that that I'm... And, and giving myself so little pressure for it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm certainly not asking. That's not the question I'm asking. I'm not like... You're like, are you on, a one-hit what's wonder? Na- what's na- <laughs> no, that's not the question I'm asking because I know full well. Um, I know full well uh, what it is. And, I, and I, I sort of reject the premise of, you know, that expectation that somebody who has created something is supposed to immediately create something else. I don't think that's where the best stuff comes from anyway. You need Gosh, to... Gosh, the germination period yeah, is intense. Yeah, it's got to germinate. And I feel very uncomfortable with germination periods. I feel very uncomfortable with interstitial moments. I uh, think that was why... I think it was very helpful, you know, to be dating someone who was comfortable with that part of the creative process when mm, I was writing this book. Right. Because I would have... I find this sort of sitting with things so uncomfortable that I'm sometimes willing to just run away before I've found the path because it's not like it's the like completionist part of you I guess that totally. was always getting good grades and exactly. all that right and, and maybe it's just part of me mm-hmm. but I think that you have to be willing to sit in not knowing for a while and it's hard when you can just oh full circle full circle when you just pick up your iPhone and just escape from the not knowing sure and so I find I have to lock my iPhone away in a box if I want to and writing is for me a way that I can slow down, that I can sort of get uncomfortable enough that I get comfortable with it. But if I don't go through that difficult, if I don't have a lot of structure around me, like a locked phone and right. and time and I mean, even 20 minutes, but a locked phone in 20 minutes, no email. And if I don't have that, I find it hard to slow down enough to find anything in myself. The thought occurred to me that locking your iPhone is another act of theft 
from your father theft of, <laughs> I know, of your like, own ah. your own time yeah exactly <laughs> although he was definitely um he was good at he yeah, was good that, at going on yeah, walks yeah, without yeah, his phone yeah. as far I know, as i but knew him he made, but he made he's he gave us all that you I know, know. <laughs> well i you know it was such a large team of people and it was also like maybe just the future driving forward yeah yeah, yeah. right i mean right. and would have happened anyway right maybe yeah. i don't know if it would have happened as beautifully or as soulfully <laughs> i mean here i am i'm like selling iphones one at a time um but I, I but i yeah it's really problematic and people are both occupied and lonely and that's indeed and i think that i know as much as anyone knows you have to go through boredom to get somewhere creative but still, without a lot of structure and help, I don't want to because it is so uncomfortable. And that discomfort as an artist, you're almost, you're trying to do for other people, right? You're like, I'm going to go through this kind of hell, <laughs> of which is, of course, a rarefied kind of hell. I'm not saying, you know, it's not like you're not eating or your children are hungry or something. That's hell. Sure. Um, but I'm going to go through this kind of hell so that other people either feel inspired to do it themselves or don't have to because I'll, I'll, I'll bring back the, the jewel I get there. It's also your own freedom. I mean, you, you, you go through that crucible and you're better for it. Right. You go through it because otherwise you're living <laughs> in hell yourself. Right. Lisa, Brennan, Jobs, I've got to let you go. Um, but it's been lovely talking to you. Thanks so much for being on Think Again. Thank you so much for having me. That was so fun. Thank you. So that is it for another episode of Think Again. I would love to hear from you. If you're a longtime listener or you're checking in for the first time, you can find me through my website, Jason Gotts, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S dot com. Uh, you can sign up for my mailing list and or write me directly an email. And I... I think I always respond. I certainly always try to respond. Um, and I think I may have responded to every email I've received, at least at least the first one. I do my best. Um, so we'll be back next week with something completely different. And I hope you can join me. <laughs> <laughs>